Welcome, everyone. Uh, on behalf of Dean Sandra Peart, uh, I'm Thad Williamson. I'm Associate Professor of Leadership Studies and Philosophy, Politics, Economics, and Law at the University. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's presentation, Where Do We Go From Here? The Jefferson School of Leadership Studies teaches our students for and about leadership. And one way we do that is through our Leader in Residence program. Leaders in residence have demonstrated substantial leadership experience and skill to meet with students in informal and formal settings and share their knowledge with campus and with the greater Richmond community. Past leaders in residence have included Dr. Vivian Penn, Senator Tim Kaine, and astronaut and UR alumnus Leland Melvin. Last fall, we were honored to host our 2018-19 leader in residence, Senator Jennifer McClellan, in classes and for a luncheon with Jefferson students, faculty, and staff. We're delighted to have her with us again for this afternoon and happy to welcome her, a UR class of 94 alumna, back to campus. Uh, Jennifer McClellan was elected to the state Senate in 2017, is known as an effective, constituent service-oriented legislator who stands up for progressive values. At Jepson, we talk a lot about servant leadership, and the senator sets the standard. A Virginia House of Delegates member for 11 years, she has worked to reform education, break the school-to-prison pipeline, reform the criminal justice system, combat domestic and sexual violence, and diversify Virginia's economy. She champions affordable housing, civil rights, and ethics reform, and fiercely protects reproductive rights, children, and families. In the Senate, she serves the Agricultural Conservation and Natural Resources, local government and transportation committees, and chairs the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Commission. She also co-chairs the Capital Region Caucus and serves as the vice chair of the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus and on the Southern Regional Education Board Legislative Advisory Council. An engaged member of communities is active on many boards and associations, including the Democratic National Committee and Democratic Party of Virginia Steering Committee. She's Associate General Counsel for State Regulatory and Government Affairs for the Mid-Atlantic of Verizon Communications and has held leadership positions in the Virginia State Bar, the Virginia Bar Association, and several locally, local and specialty bar associations. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Senator Jennifer McClellan. Thank you. Good afternoon. It is always a pleasure to be uh, on campus um, and particularly on a beautiful spring day. Um, I spent part of uh, the afternoon uh, over uh, talking to a political science class and it was nice. All of my classes were in what is now the Weinstein Hall or Ryland Hall um, and so lots of memories came flooding back as I stood uh, on that lawn over there. So always a pleasure to be back. So it was a little daunting to give a leadership um, lecture to a leadership school, <laughs> um, and, but, but here we are. And so I thought I would talk a little bit just about what leadership is to, to frame the rest of my discussion. So leadership is about guiding a group, an organization, um, through its present and to plan for the future. And the word itself implies forging ahead, but to forge ahead, you first have to fully understand where you are. To understand where you are, you have to understand where you come from, where you've been, how you got there, and how it has shaped your present and your path forward. And so as a leader, you are often asked 
or you ask the question yourself, where do we go from here? Now, I stole the title of my lecture from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Where do we go from here was a speech that he gave in 1967 that I'm going to touch on a little bit later. And the title of the last book that he wrote in 1968. It was a question that he was focused on in the last year of his life. And as we commemorated the 50th anniversary of his assassination last year, I, through uh, as chair of the commission, moderated a series of panels across the Commonwealth asking the question, where do we go from here? That question took on new relevance during the 2019 session. But throughout my career in state government before 2019, I've seen and come to understand how decisions made in the past, actions taken in the past, points of view had in the past, has shaped problems we still face today and impacted how policy choices we make today impact communities in ways foreseen and unforeseen. So I'm going to give you an example through a story. In 2010, um, Bob McDonnell was the new governor. And every year, the governor invites the Legislative Black Caucus for dinner, usually two or three times during session. The first time Governor McDonnell had the Black Caucus over uh, was January of 2010. We were just beginning to commemorate the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. And I was sitting next to Governor McDonnell. And he asked me, you know, very light dinner conversation, how are we doing with race relations in Virginia? <laughs> this was 2010. I said, well, Governor, we've clearly come a long way. We're the second year in the administration of the first African-American president. Um, and, and we've clearly come a long way. But what I see is a problem that so many people born after Jim Crow who never really learned about it, who don't understand its impact, and don't understand how policies that they support today has a disproportionate impact on communities of color. OK, well, give me an example, he said. I had a really good example, because we had just, on the House floor, killed the first bill to require a government-issued photo ID to vote that had made it to the floor. And I had given a speech on the floor with other members of the Black Caucus uh, that ultimately resulted in that bill going back to committee where it never came out. He said, well, why, why is that a problem? Shouldn't we want to fight voter fraud? I said, well, OK, let's set aside the argument over are there a lot of people voting claiming to be somebody they're not. Let's set that aside for a minute. What do you need to get a government-issued photo ID? Anybody know? You need a birth certificate. So well, did you know that as late as 1940, there are people born in Virginia who don't have a birth certificate? He said, no, I didn't know that. Why? Well, Governor, because in 1924, Virginia passed the Racial Integrity Act. It was the law that required live recorded births for the first time and required you to record the race of the child. And the first person who implemented that law as director of vital statistics was Walter Plecker. 
a white supremacist who did not believe there were any native Virginians unless they were directly descended from Pocahontas. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> and so if you showed up in his office and you didn't check the colored box and he thought you were, you didn't get a birth certificate. And the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia said, I didn't know that. And I thought, but didn't say to him, well, of course you didn't. You're a middle-aged white guy who grew up in Fairfax who had no reason to know your family wasn't impacted and you didn't learn about it in school. I decided not to say that because this was the first time we had ever had dinner. <laughs> and I thought, I'll save that for the second or the third. <laughs> to his credit, the following year, a, a photo ID, not government issue, but a photo ID bill did come to his desk and he amended it to add at least three non-photo forms of ID uh, that people could use to vote. Uh, and then, of course, the following year, those were quickly eliminated. Uh, but at least, I thought, he's learning. That gave me a little bit of hope. So that story could transcend disciplines. Whether you are a policymaker, a business leader, a community leader, a faith leader, an education leader, a leader in Hollywood, wherever, you have to understand where society as a whole has been and how it has shaped whatever organization, community, or system you are leading. So I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. Virginia is in the midst. We love commemorations. We love anniversaries in Virginia. We love our history, some of it. We are in the midst of commemorating the 400th anniversary of several key events that shaped who we are as a commonwealth, as a country, and as a society. These are dates that may be taught in school, but their significance is not deeply taught in school. We learned in elementary school that 1607 was, the, was England's first permanent colony at Jamestown along the James River. The rest of the story that we didn't learn until, at least for me, I was an adult, is that that settlement was part of a business venture, the Virginia Company, a corporate enterprise to discover how to exploit the natural resources of this newly found land for profit, for investors, and the crown, for about 100 white English men, and that their settlement was on land that was owned by an alliance of Algonquin-speaking people led by a paramount chief named Powhatan, whose origins dated back to 900 AD. 1619, several things. It was the first year that what is now the General Assembly met, bringing the concept of representative democracy to the New World, which was modeled after the English form of parliament. Shortly thereafter, but again, who were they? White, English, men, part of a business venture for profit for themselves and investors back in England. So they met in July of 1619 to form a government. A month later, a Dutch privateer arrived at Port Comfort, and he had a ship on which were 20 and odd Africans that were stolen from modern-day Angola by the Portuguese to be traded as slaves and then stolen again by Dutch pirates and were traded to John Rolfe 
for provisions and food. And while legally slavery had not been established in the colony, in effect, they were slaves who were brought to serve the settlers as they were forming their government. By November of 1619, the colonists kind of realized if we're gonna be a permanent settlement, we need women. But they recruited women, quote, to make wives to the inhabitants. So women were recruited and 90 arrived in May of 1920 and another 57 in 1621. And their rights were surrendered to their husbands. They couldn't vote, they couldn't uphold public office or control their own property. So the foundations of our Commonwealth and our country were established on a power structure put in place in 1619 that put landowning white men at the top to be served by women and both of whom were served by Africans who were treated as property. And at the same time, the rights of the people who were originally from that land were subjugated. 100 years later, during the age, age 150 years later, during the Age of Enlightenment, we produced a, a document that you are all familiar with and learned in school. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And 13 years later, the Constitution created our modern form of government for we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, a government that Abraham Lincoln called a government by, of, and for the people. The American story since then has been one of striving to apply the ideals of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to all. It has been a struggle for America to live up to the ideals that formed, a, strove to form a more perfect union, and for all to be equal and given an opportunity regardless of race, religion, creed, gender, or sexual orientation. And we're not there yet. And we're not there yet because throughout our history, hatred, president, pre prejudice, bias, implicit and explicit, and bigotry has been used to divide us. And when marginalized and oppressed people have come together to gain social, economic, or political power, or in some cases, all three, those hatred has been used to divide all. And that's dangerous. And we've seen, as recent as in New Zealand, how dangerous that can be. There's another danger we don't often talk about, and that is ignorance. It is an ignorance of our history and how it has shaped our social, economic, and political systems over the past 400 years. It's ignorance of the impact of, of centuries of systematic oppression through slavery, Jim Crow, laws that subjugated women and other minorities, and that just because these laws change, the effects those laws have on society do not go away overnight without intentional action. So 
Where do we go from here? Again, not a new question. Dr. King, in his speech, asked it in the context of, now that we have gained the right to vote, the right to live together in public accommodations, what do we do with these newfound rights? The central theme of his book and his speech was hope. Reflecting upon the civil rights movement, Dr. King discussed that hope and love in the face of hatred and despair was a powerful, powerful tool that could be used to educate and to motivate. But he didn't get the chance to finish his work to build what he called a beloved community. He also understood that his message couldn't just be a message to African Americans, but had to be a message to all Americans. Because to overcome the systematic inequities we have in this country, we must do it together. Where do we go from here was also a question asked by the Kerner Commission in 1968, the same time that Dr. King's book came out. The Kerner Commission was created to examine the race riots of 1967. What were the causes? What were the effects? And what do we do to stop it? Its report came out in February of 1968. The report could have come out in February of 2018. The report berated federal, state, and local governments for failed housing, education, and social services policies. It aims some of its sharpest criticism for the media, acknowledging that the press has too long basked in a white world looking out of it, if at all, with white men's eyes and white perspective. The report noted that white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintained it, and white society condones it. The most famous passage from the report warned, our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And it had a series of recommendations on what we could do to address these systematic inequities. Dr. King, when he read the report, said it was a physician's warning of approaching death with a prescription for life. And indeed, the report echoed the framework that Dr. King laid out in his book but nobody listened. To the contrary, the backlash to the report was swift. Lyndon Johnson, who felt he had done so much to help with civil rights and race relations, was angry. And the backlash culminated in an explosive Southern strategy that was used to, used to elect Richard Nixon in 1968. But that was not the first time we saw a backlash. In fact, we've had many cycles throughout our history, starting with right after the Civil War through Reconstruction, of a rise in political, social, and economic power among oppressed groups at that time, newly, newly freed slaves, coming together across racial lines, across economic lines, across political lines to work to reform this union in Reconstruction. And as they progressed, at the end of Reconstruction, there was a backlash. 
as white supremacy, racial terror, and the old power structure used hatred and division to break this new alliance between newly freed slaves and, and, and particularly poor, but not exclusively poor, uh, whites. And then over time, as the civil rights movement led to the election of the first African Americans into state government, social, economic, uh, political power among African Americans, a growing coalition between migrant workers, poor people, um, African Americans, and to a certain extent, extent, the women's movement, there was a backlash culminating in the election of Richard Nixon. And then the cycle continued, ultimately culminating in the election of Barack Obama and a backlash that we saw in 2016 elections in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. This cycle is not new. This cycle will repeat itself unless we take action to stop it. What is frustrating after reading the Kerner Commission report and spending so much time looking at where we were 50 years ago when Dr. King was assassinated, when that report came out, we have come a long way. Let me go back to the, my answer to, to Governor McDonald. Since 1968, we've seen more diversity, and not just racial, but of all kinds. We've seen more diversity among our elected officials, government officials, in our education institutions, the private sector from Hollywood to the C-suite. And yet, systematic inequity and disparities occur and persist in education, health outcomes, wealth distribution, home ownership, incarceration, and even school discipline. So as emerging leaders, you have to understand whatever your field, to truly understand what you are leading and where you are leading it, you have to understand where it came from. And so I give you that long history to bring you to some of what problems we still face today. In 2019, we still live in a commonwealth where a child with autism can be charged with a misdemeanor and suspended from school because when called to the principal's office, he kicks a trash can. We live in a commonwealth where a child singing a rap song on a school bus can be charged with a misdemeanor and suspended from school. And we live in a commonwealth where those referral to law enforcement and discipline policies disproportionately impact students of color and students with disabilities. We live in a commonwealth where too many families and individuals are one illness away from economic devastation, eviction, losing their job, and losing sight of the American dream. We live in a commonwealth where there are not enough housing units that are affordable for people because wages have not kept pace with the cost of everything else. We live in a commonwealth where people of color and people with disabilities, particularly mental health issues, are disproportionately represented as criminal defendants, social services representatives, children in foster care, but they are underrepresentatives as judges, lawyers, caseworkers, teachers, principals, or any of the leaders of the institutions that can help break those cycles. But there's hope. 
there's hope. Because many people had their eyes opened in 2016. Many people born after Jim Crow who thought, I mean, again, if you were taught like I was in school, you thought Martin Luther King had a dream after Rosa Parks sat on the bus, the Civil Rights Act was passed, Barack Obama was elected president, and we reached the promised land. We didn't. But a lot of people believed that until the 2016 election, when they saw the rhetoric that was used once again to divide us, and when they saw overt hatred still exists, and they saw it on display in Charlottesville. But people are also starting to see, as we saw in February, when the governor's yearbook photo came out, they're starting to see ignorance is just as big a problem as overt hatred. And if we don't address, sometimes, you know, it's hard to address hatred direct, directly. Now, Dr. King believed, and I do too, but it's a lot harder to do, that you can overcome hatred with love. But ignorance is a lot easier to address. And it is not something that can just be done by our education system. It is something that has to be done by all of us. So we have to have hopeful leaders that are committed to address that ignorance and the disparities that it leads to. And as Dr. King said, difficult and painful as it is, we must walk in the days ahead with an audacious faith in our future. It is, important, it is as important today as it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 400 years ago. It is important to remember that the arc of the moral universe is long and does bend towards justice, as Dr. King said. But I would add, it takes a little bit of help to bend it from all of us. So I ask each of you, what are you going to do? Particularly those who want to be leaders today, tomorrow, or in the future. What are you going to do to help bend that arc so that it doesn't take another 400 years before it actually reaches justice? Thank you. So I think we, uh, I'm going to take questions, and there are microphones that are, that are coming up if anybody wants to ask one. A few weeks ago, I was in a class about Richmond's notable women. And our teacher told us about people through history. And then the last picture that she put up was yours. Oh. And <laughs> she told us to keep an eye on you. And <laughs> because you are a notable woman of the future. Oh. And what I'm wondering is if you have aides here who are going to take down our email addresses so that when you're running for statewide office, I can volunteer for your oh, thank you. campaign. So I do, yes. <laughs> And thank you for helping me with another lesson. The mark of a good leader is you have to acknowledge when you need help. 
So I have three, um, all three of, of my staff are here. Uh, Abby Phillips, my chief of staff, is in the front. Uh, Migas Debebe, who is my outreach director and handles all my political stuff, is here. And Nicole Hayes is uh, legislative assistant. You have been at the forefront of social justice issues. So can you address some uh, both um, city and uh, state initiatives that you believe in can address some of the issues that you brought up and bring fundamental and meaningful change? Yes, thank you for your question. Um, I think, you know, my, pub, my passion is public education. I'm, I'm, um, my parents were, my father was a third generation educator. Both of my parents saw firsthand how important education is for um, success. And unfortunately, um, the education system has become um, part of the, the, the social safety network. Um, when you have kids who, if, if school is canceled, um, don't eat, you know you've got a problem. So, so my first priority, and I think where we've really tried to make um, some effort, is increasing funding state funding for public education because um, our system right now leaves too much on the backs of our local governments without giving them the tools they need to really address the problems that they face um, or to raise the money to do it. So um, we, are, we have been struggling with trying to change the funding formula or if not change it to at least um, uh, make some additions so that those schools that have higher concentrations of poverty and at-risk students um, or students with mental health needs, um, get the funding they need to provide those services. Um, we have also really struggled to make sure that we are building an education system that is not um, teaching to SOL tests, but actually teaching the skills and the knowledge that people need to get a job and just function as, as you know, as a society. I mean, our whole democracy was based on an educated populace. And yet throughout time, uh, we have withheld information from people purposefully uh, to keep them from being informed voters. So I think that's the first area is, is education. Related, um, I've spent a lot of time focused on the school to prison pipeline. Those stories I told you about those kids charged with misdemeanors and, and um, suspended were real. We've, we've made some progress on the suspension expulsion side. Last year, we passed legislation that limited the amount of time someone could be um, suspended uh, and the age at which they could be suspended. We have not done a lot on the, the referrals to law enforcement. And I had a bill that would have eliminated the charge of disorderly conduct for behavior that would disrupt a school or school-sponsored activity. Um, which is where a lot of these referrals to law enforcement for really what should be behavior handled by the discipline process has happened. Um, so those are just a couple that I've focused on. But everything, I mean, this morning, we, I was at a bill signing um, for, for foster care. JLARC issued a study that, was, that just um, showed we are failing kids in state custody through the foster care system, um, which again are disproportionately kids of color um, and, and we're failing them. Um, and when, and, and kids go into the foster care system because of decision, you know, it's not, people assume if a parent loses custody of a child, it's because they've committed a horrific crime. But oftentimes it's because they've fallen into a cycle of poverty. 
And when the parent falls into a cycle of poverty and a child is put into a foster care system that fails them, you are setting them up for a life of poverty or not having what they need. So addressing that. Um, I mean, I could go, I mean, pretty much any function of government right now is, is um, full of inequity and, 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 and disparities between the haves and the have-nots that are just getting worse. And, and yet, when we make budget decisions, we don't make budget decisions that necessarily reflect what are the full, you know, who, who needs what. Um, and our budget decisions often exacerbate those disparities in ways that, that makes it even harder to address. So that's a long answer to your question and I'm not sure fully answered it, but because it's too big a problem. Much of what you address is related to a fair shot by the public at voting. And I understand that the General Assembly has just passed the first step of possibly taking redistricting out of the hands of the General Assembly into some kind of commission. If I understand the process correctly, it was voted on now, it has to be voted on in the same form by the next General Assembly, and then if it passes, it goes to the public That's for a vote. Yep. What is your estimate of the likelihood of that passing? <laughs> so if I learned anything, um, this session is don't predict the future, but 50-50, um, I think, is, is the likelihood. There, and a lot is going to depend on what happens in this election. The, the, the reason um, that that first step was taken now is for a constitutional amendment to pass, there has to be an intervening election of the entire General Assembly in between. And, and the purpose of that is to ensure that what passes, it's sort of a, 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 a two-step process to make sure the people want it to happen. So the idea is if you have two different general assemblies that have gone through an election process and theoretically people have expressed their opinion in, in electing those legislators, then you get direct uh, approval by the people. Um, so a lot will depend on what happens in, in this, this election and, and politically there is enough momentum behind nonpartisan redistricting that I feel pretty confident that it will pass again next session, um, no matter who's in the majority. Um, and, and now that, what we passed wasn't perfect. Um, now a lot of us voted for it because we thought this is the best shot that we can get, but what we really wanted to see was something that completely took politics out um, by at least saying whoever draws the maps you will not use party data in drawing the maps. What happens now is we all get, every single district has an index that tells you the Democrat or Republican voting strength based on past elections. And you, and you look at it when you're drawing the lines and you can look by census block. You know, as you move a line, you can see how many Democrats or Republicans you're putting in. 
Well, if you don't have that data to begin with, it's a lot harder for you to draw districts to protect one political party or another. We couldn't get that in the constitutional amendment, but we're going to try to get it in legislation that implements the constitutional amendment. So there's still a little bit of work to, to be done, but I feel, I feel good about that first step. Thank you. I've been in state government all my life, so I definitely do your job. But uh, I guess one question, you mentioned Jay. I'll repeat his question. Okay. Sorry, this one does not appear to work. <laughs> so um, you mentioned Jay Lock, and I guess my first question would be who uh, determines what studies they do? Mm. That's a very good question, because that's changed. Um, so who determines the studies that JLARC does? It used to be that the General Assembly would pass legislation saying JLARC will study this. Um, and any bill to recreate a study had to be filed by the first day so that we could figure out fiscal impact and the complete workload uh, that JLARC could potentially have. Um, a few years ago, we passed a bill. We can, can still do that. But we passed a bill that gives JLARC itself, and particularly its staff, a little more say in, in because we, we, we put too much on them. Right, right. Um, and so we gave them a little bit more say in, here is what our capacity is based on what we've already been tasked with. And they'll kind of say, you know, here, here are some things we, we still need to study, and here's where our capacity is. So we've limited a little bit what the General Assembly can load on them. And, and the reason that was, and I got another quick question after that, but the reason that sparked my interest is because I worked for the State Auditor's Office for a while, for a few years. The auditor? Yes, okay. I did, and um, you know, knew about the connection with JLA. But uh, last week I had the opportunity to attend the uh, communication, the conversation between uh, Mayor Stoney and um, former Mayor Landrieu. And um, a lot of what they talked about and what um, former Mayor Landrieu was trying to do is get a lot of community activity going. Um, and I guess from your standpoint, from your view, how do you see all of this connected so we can't, because the issues that are on the table as far as poverty and inequities and all of that, it's, it's nobody's, you know, no one group could do it. It takes all of us. But yeah. how do we really, really make a difference in that? And then when we look at what's happening in Washington, um, have some um, experience on the tax side. A lot of the changes that occurred, people didn't even know, yeah. um, you know, what a lot of changes occurred in the tax law. So, um, you know, we have to be more vigilant in what, how we pursue things, but how do we really get, you know, connected from all of this good work that's being done in the communities so that we can make a push at, you know, everything that's happening. Thanks again. Sure, thank you. Um, hopefully you all heard that, but um, basically how, how, do, how do we connect, uh, let's see if I can paraphrase this right, how do we connect sort of what business is doing, things that are happening in the community, because these, you know, a lot of these problems that we've talked about can't be solved just by government. It's going to sort of take a partnership. Does that kind of summarize a little bit? I, I think it is very, first we have to acknowledge that there is no silver bullet. We have to acknowledge that, that government has a role, that communities have a role, the nonprofit community has a role, the business community has a role, the faith community has a role. Um, and, and we need to be honest with ourselves and have a dialogue about what are the strengths, the weaknesses, and the abilities of each of those groups. So whenever, for, for me, 
if, if we're trying to tackle an issue, I think the first thing we need to do is identify who are all the stakeholders that are either affected by it or working to solve it. And then you've got to bring those stakeholders together and not have a tops-down approach to say, well, this is what we think you need to be doing, which is often what government, but not just government, the business community does that a lot. And you know, any organization typically will have the leaders in, in, in the executive suite saying, this is what you think we think we should be doing. But it's been so long since they've been on the ground that there's a disconnect between what their solution does, what they think it does, and what the impact actually is. So rather than a tops-down approach, you need to really have a bottoms-up where you, you go to people on the ground and say, tell me what you're facing. Tell me sort of what you need. You know, what is government doing right to help you? What is government doing that hinders you? And then go to each of those other stakeholder groups and, and together tackle it bit by bit. Um, the biggest frustration, though, is people get impatient. And, and most of the problems that we are tackling didn't happen overnight, right? They're not going to be solved overnight. And we've got to have the will to stick with it. And to come back every once in a while and say, all right, we have a plan. Now let's come back periodically and say, is our plan doing what we thought it would do? Or has it veered off and created some unintended consequences that we then need to address? A lot of times, and, and Congress is famous for this, and to a certain extent the General Assembly, we will pass a law and then move on and never come back and say, hey, did that do what we wanted it to do? So part of it is on us to ask those questions. Like right now, so I'm Generation X. Um, I was fortunate enough to come to the University of Richmond debt-free um, because my parents took on the debt. But there was debt, but I didn't have to worry about it. Millennials are in a different position. And so as I hear people talk about this crippling college debt that, that is causing, like, how do we solve that? I just asked a question, hey, we passed a law, I don't know, 18 years ago, long enough that, that the, the, uh, the prepaid tuition bill, that babies who were born and parents who bought prepaid tuition accounts, those kids are now in college. They're now graduating college. So has anybody gone back and looked, like, did that make a difference for those kids? Or do they have debt? No, we just keep going and say, well, we have prepaid tuition, so problem solved. Is it? So that's just one example of something, you know, you got to come back periodically and just say, did the step we take to solve a problem actually make a difference or not? And if not, why not do we need to course correct? Is this working now? Yes, I think. Can you hear her? Good. I wanted to ask your take on what happened with the Equal Rights Amendment and whether or not that will wrap back around again. Yes, Equal Rights Amendment, what happened? Um, <laughs> uh, so um, <laughs> it passed the Senate. <laughs> 
It passed the Senate uh, with a wide bipartisan um, majority, and then on the House side was sent to a very unfriendly subcommittee uh, where it died on, I think it was a maybe eight to seven partisan vote. The, the reason for that, the arguments that are used against the ERA um, goes as follows. And these were arguments actually made you know, on the floor, so I'm not making this up. Um, Dick Black believes that the Equal Rights Amendment is a secret agenda by the abortion industry to make access to abortion easy and free and you know, whoever wants one can have abortion on demand. And that it will lead to um, colleges having to have girls and boys live in the same dorm room and then the girls will get raped. And that um, men and women will use the same bathroom and the world will end. I paraphrase a little bit, but that's basically what he said. Um, and the Family Foundation, which is very strong among conservative Republicans, adamantly opposed it. And to the point where they would, they would use a vote on the ERA as a, as a litmus test in, um, in primaries, I think. And so um, because the, the speaker could decide what committee it went to, and the committee, it went to a committee that was very unfriendly with an unfriendly chair, who sent it to a subcommittee with a very unfriendly chair, um, it died. But it's coming back, and I have a feeling, based on what's gonna happen this November, it's gonna pass next year. Uh, based on the current landscape of social justice and kind of the current events that you, and your knowledge of it, how do you see young people's role in the coming future and where we should really, if we're interested, focus our energies, whether it should be government, nonprofit, uh, different sectors, where do you find uh, young people to be most effective? Where are most people all effective? Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. Um, and, and throughout um, history, young people have led protest movements and been part of protest movements that have helped make change, whether it was Barbara Johns, whether it was the sit-ins, whether it was you know, the students in Parkland, whether it was the Black Lives Matter movement, it's been young people that have led the way, and, but not alone. And, and you are starting to see, you know, and throughout history, um, as, as younger voices are in, in halls of government, the product has been better. I think what, so I'm gonna start with government. You know, if we're going to be a government by, of, and for the people, all of the people need to be represented, and that includes diversity of age. Your government should reflect the diversity of the people it serves. And so, um, you know, Gen Z, you're Gen Z? You're college? Yeah, you're Gen Z. Um, everybody talks about millennials, but Gen Z, they're here, so um, <laughs> get to know them. Um, you know, you all are coming of age politically you, you know, if you're, over, if you're 21, you can run for office. If you're 18, you can vote. And so the first step, you have to be involved politically because all the protesting and the marching in the world is not alone going to make change if we don't change laws. And so whether it's voting, whether it's lobbying, or whether it's running for office, your voice has to be heard, not just marching and protesting and on Twitter, um, but in the halls of government, either, either pushing legislation or, or introducing legislation as, as, a, as a legislator yourself. Um, 
The same is true in the nonprofit world. Um, you know, we don't like to believe that one day we're going to die and be gone. And often, a failure of leadership is to not bring people up and plan, do succession planning. And you probably need to do multiple layers of succession planning. And we don't do that. In, a lot of people don't do that. The business community is pretty good at it, but the political world, the nonprofit world, community organizing, not very good at it. So we've got to do a better job of making sure, we, the older folks, need to do a better job of making sure that we are bringing you along. But part of it also is you have to proactively come to us and say, don't forget about me. I want to learn from you. Um, and I tease, you know, all my staff are millennials, and I tease them all the time, that millennials think, and I don't really think this, I just like to say it to make them mad, but, you know, millennials get a bad rap for thinking they were the first ones to do anything, that their ideas are the best ideas and they're new, and nobody ever did it before. And then they find out, like, oh, this isn't new. Um, and so I think we've got to recognize that all age groups have something to offer, and, and that by, by sharing our points of view, um, it makes whatever decision we're trying to make stronger. I have question, time for one more, I think. Hi there, my name is Lena. Thank you for being here today. Um, my question is in regards of this, uh, um, how can more uh, people get involved in having hard, hard conversations? So every day when I go to my internship, there's a civil rights monument on my way that I see. There's a quote by Justice Thurgood Marshall that yes. says that the legal system can force open the doors and sometimes even knock down walls, but it cannot build bridges. That job belongs to you and me. So instead of always looking for the top-down approach or waiting for the government to do something, what can we as a community, the black community, the white community, the immigrant refugees, how can we come together to have those hard conversations and build those bridges so we actually do knock down those walls that the government is trying to help us with? That was a very, very good question. Um, how do we have these hard conversations? Well, number one, get out of your comfort zone. Get off Facebook, get off Twitter, because these conversations cannot be had in 280 characters. They cannot be had in the anonymity of sitting on your computer in a, in a group of people who all look like you, think like you, have your experiences. Get in a room and talk to someone completely different, whether it's Democrats and Republicans, black and white, you know, whatever it is, men and women, and talk about why you believe what you believe, why you see problems the way you see them, and what we can do about it. And that is why we're stuck. The Russians chose social media to manipulate around the issue of race for a reason. How many of you grew up in Richmond? How many of you when you started to have a conversation within the past, let's say between 1970 
and 2008. How many of you, whenever a conversation started about race or slavery or the Civil War, somebody said, oh, that's, that's too complex. Let's not talk about that. I heard it all the time. I heard it all the time. The other one, you don't talk about politics, religion, or race. If you don't talk about religion, then you don't understand how there is more that unites Muslims, Jews, and Christians than divides us. And yet, oftentimes, there's violence committed on people based on what group, if any, they belong to. So we have got to have, I mean, the, the monuments is a perfect example. How many years went by where we didn't even talk about them? And then when we do talk about them, it becomes just this shouting match of heritage versus hate. And that shouting match ignores the whole history behind how were these particular monuments built and why and what was happening when those monuments were put in place. If you do not have those conversations from a place of I want to understand, if you walk in a room and say to somebody, you are a racist, they shut down. They may be a racist. And you can call out racist behavior. But there are a lot of people who are not racists, but they enable racism because they don't know they're doing it. And, and for them particularly, if you don't educate them on how they are complicit from a space that's not attacking, they will never listen to you. That is not an easy thing to do. It is not an easy thing to do. And I find my, I'll be honest, there, are, there have been times, particularly since Trayvon Martin's shooting, when I've just been so angry. I didn't want to talk about it. We have to. Because remember that cycle I talked about? That cycle gets perpetuate because too many people who mean well just live their lives oblivious to things that are going around and then wonder, well, why is it still happening? And it'll keep happening unless we talk to each other across political, racial, gender, all the lines and just ask somebody who you think on their face you wouldn't agree with. Why do you believe what you believe? Just tell me a little bit about your background. Tell me your life experience. Tell me your family experience. We saw that in February when that picture came out. It was triggering for a lot of people. And there were others who said, What's the big deal? If the people who are triggered don't explain why, we have faced centuries of trauma in this country. And any good therapist will tell you, you will never heal from trauma if you first don't acknowledge it existed. If you, the person suffering the trauma, don't express it and how it impacted you and the person who committed the trauma you don't hear how it impacted the other person you don't talk about it you'll never heal and that is the cycle 
of America. And we won't end it unless we as individuals start having these very difficult, painful conversations with people we don't agree with.